Welcome to Narrative Live on a Wednesday evening. It's Thursday morning now in Croatia, where we find our guest tonight. How are you, Peter Kadek Adams? It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Zev. It's very good to be with you as well on the other side of the herring pond. <laughs> you are, you know, for the uninitiated, quite a prolific writer. You've written several. I don't even know if it's might be even I don't even know what numbers. It must be like twenty books about all these incredible wars in history. So you are not only a great person to have here to talk about wars, but you're also a NATO historian. Tell us what a NATO historian does versus every other kind of historian. Well, I was the NATO historian in Bosnia in the, the wars, in fact, over here. And this was when we were moving out of the hot phase when shots were being exchanged, when NATO arrived. And this was the first military undertaking in a war zone that NATO had undertaken. Mm. So nobody really knew exactly how the articles of NATO, which had been put down in 1949, would actually pan out in a real war zone. So they threw money at recording everything that went on. And, you know, this was every meeting, visiting every unit, collecting all sorts of sort of memorabilia, photographs, documents for, you know, the NATO archives. And they had never done anything like that before. So I made it up as I went along and they let me. But it was a phenomenal effort. So that's what it was. And from my point of view as a professional military historian, this was seeing a giant campaign massively funded by all the NATO partners unfold at the operational level because I was in the commander-in-chief's um, headquarters. Oh, wow. So I saw it, you know, from a really privileged position. Yeah, you don't often get to have historians sitting right there with the commander-in-chief. I mean, that's a pretty privileged place to be and a great way to view history because otherwise, you know, history gets to rewrite itself over time. But as you, you were probably writing the first draft, if you say that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we often say that journalism is the first draft of history. And I'd like to think I've also worked as a journalist in the past, but, you know, I'm a trained historian, so I, I knew what to look for. Right. So, you know, so, so I was throwing that ingredient into the mix. But modern commanders on a modern battlefield are very well advised. So alongside me were foreign and diplomatic advisors. Um, there was always a legal advisor there. There was always a media advisor there. And you would find this for every major nation in every modern campaign. So the, the person at the top doesn't move until he's got the best possible advice and he, he or she doesn't open their mouth until they're absolutely sure that their, their comments will be in alignment with all the policy and there's no return with embarrassing sort of apology or I, I got that wrong. And I was one of those because history matters in a lot of campaigns like this and certainly with Ukraine as we're about to discuss. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly interesting. Joe Biden you know, arrived this evening in Brussels for an emergency meeting of NATO tomorrow. There are already indications that they're going to send four new battalions to the neighboring countries of Ukraine, uh, you know, probably just because they're concerned, but who knows if they're concerned about something specific or not, we don't know. But there is also this amped up concern around nuclear weapons and about some sort of nuclear bomb or explosion or something that the Russians might try to undertake in Ukraine. The West hears nuclear war or nuclear anything, it freaks out because it's a very, you know, very, very scary. But there are different kinds of nuclear weapons, of course. There are tactical nuclear weapons and there's the, the bigger ones that blow up cities. But how concerned should we be, you know, that Russia could actually detonate a nuclear bomb in Ukraine? Okay, well, so I'm, I'm glad you've asked me that. I have a message to everyone listening, which is stay calm. This is a Russian threat. It came out the moment Vladimir Putin announced his invasion. There were all sorts of implicit threats of 
if anyone else were to interfere, the consequences would be awesome and beyond your comprehension. All sorts of threats along those lines. Clearly, this was rela- related to nuclear weapons. And then he's been more explicit since, and he put his forces on heightened alert. What does that mean? It actually meant nothing because they were on the sort of alert status they are normally every day. Mm. So why am I reassuring everybody? Our satellites and all our, all the range of intelligence sources watch all of their nuclear stuff daily, hourly. And there's not a shred of evidence that any of it has left any of its assembly places. Normally in a situation like this, and we see it on exercises because every force, every country has nukes, exercises their nuclear force, and they pre-advertise that so nobody gets nervous. So you know, you know roughly what happens, the doors open, these things come out, because a nuclear launcher on land is a multi-wheeled, massive vehicle, and they don't go on their own. They go with a great entourage of other vehicles, support vehicles, fuel, policing, military protection, and there are usually several of them. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge convoy of vehicles, and they go off to predetermined launch positions or wherever it might be. I mean, there's no hint that even that has been exercised. That's good to know. That's a relief. Okay. So in that sense is an idle threat. However, you did raise one point, which is there are strategic nuclear weapons, which are city killers, and there are tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Now in the West, we dropped that tactical level of nuclear capability. And this is short range missiles and artillery even that can fire a nuclear capable. Right. We abandoned all that in the Cold War. The Russians didn't. So again, there's that level that they could go to. But again, that requires all sorts of special kit. And none of that has been in evidence anywhere. None of it has even left Russia. And the other thing is, if you are going to go to that level, then you dress your guys up in their hazmat suits, in their nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare suits. And we found Russians with a few Russians, not many, with gas masks, but no one is wearing their MBC kit at all. Correct. So all the normal precautions you would take with any kind of nuclear warfare that are not evident with any of the Russian forces that have been deployed, and no satellites or anything else have picked up any kind of preparation for that kind of warfare at the tactical or the, the sort of strategic level. So at the moment, that is a completely idle threat. But that in itself is a weapon that the Kremlin are using to try and panic us. Right. It's good, important to note that. Presumably as well, people around Vladimir Putin are not going to let him do this. I mean, even though he is a, you know, a dictator, he's not entirely in control of every aspect of his military. Presumably there's going to be generals and other people like we have that are, you know, would say, hey, you can't do that right now. Is that, is that true? Or well, that's, I, what, like, so you, well, no, that's what we would hope. I yeah. mean, it's clearly not a democracy in any shape or sense of the word, but it is a functioning country mm-hmm. which has tiers and levels of command and responsibilities. Um, one would hope that all of that kicks into place. I mean, what we really don't know is what has happened to Vladimir Putin in the last two or three years connected with COVID where he's hidden himself away. I mean, he has always had a sort of paranoid or aspect to his personality. His uncle was Joe Stalin's cook. And so there is a connection with the last evil autocrat of previous Russia, which we called the Soviet Union. And he would sit on his uncle's knee hearing stories about Stalin. And as a result, Putin is the only world leader who has a food taster, right. who's employed to taste everything. He eats and drinks before 
it touches his lips on a regular basis everywhere he goes. And he also says that chef guy right, turns, turns up at all the international events. Yeah. So clearly, you know, his uncle passed him down a few horror stories mm. from the time of, of Stalin. He also so, wants to be Catherine the Great, you know, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But let's, uh, I don't want to rush oh, you yeah. here, but I'm going to just move on a little bit quickly to just talk about what the other news out of NATO today was, which is these four battalions. This is a bit of a hard map to read, but they're sending them to Bulgaria, Hungary, I think Romania and Slovakia. Slovakia. Yeah. Slovakia, yeah. presumably, maybe because they're giving it over these S-300s, if that's what in fact is happening. But all these countries are feeling a little bit of a nervousness right now, because as we can see from this map, these red areas all the way down here along the coastline, and this is the Sea of Azov and this is the Black Sea, you know, Russia has done quite, well, I'd say quite well, has managed to at least put up some sort of war effort around this Donbass area and all the way leading into Crimea. And that's worrying people that, that once this is done, once this is complete, that those forces could then move on to try and complete this whole area around Odessa, which would give them this land bridge. We should also connect them to Moldova and, and you know, all parts of the rest of Europe. So that is another big concern, obviously, is that he gets beyond his current zone of success and that he's able to get closer to the NATO borders. And what happens in that case? Well, let's just go to that map for a second, and we can see all the shaded areas which are under Russian control. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality on the ground, and I know Ukraine very well, is that there's vast areas of nothing, not even roads, a few tiny villages connected by almost tracks at this time of year when the, the weather is absolutely awful. Mm, um, and so the Russians only control the main roads mm. and some of the towns and cities in those areas. Mm. So actually, when we're coloring that map and saying this is all under Russian control, there's lots of little outposts there which are slowly evolving into partisan areas. There's lots of cut off Ukrainian army positions in those areas. And the Russians control the highways and they control the towns and the cities. And that's it. So a lot of my military colleagues have been saying, you know, the maps in themselves give an indication. But in terms of what the Russians actually control, it's much less than we even see there, which is a fascinating insight into yeah. you know, maps and, and how the campaign is being reported. But the reason for the NATO sort of deployments are to reinforce the countries which buffer or are neighboring countries to Ukraine, which are NATO alliance members. And that's to do several things. One is to underlined to the Russians in no uncertain terms that if they come any further, they will bump into NATO troops, and then that becomes a much wider European war. It's also a declaration of intent. There are a lot of nervous people in Europe at the moment, and they do need to feel that countries from elsewhere, Canada, United States, the United Kingdom, are prepared to put their money where their mouth is and send people forward, possibly into danger areas. So the, the sense of commitment there it's like signing a blank check. Mm -hmm. We will come to your aid, um, yeah. no matter what. Um, and we know how important that is to these countries, that to Ukraine. I mean, look how important, how much they're begging for their assistance. And uh, obviously, these other countries are worrying about a similar kind of invasion and also want to be protected. In the middle of all of this is Mariupol, which is just turning out to be a scene yeah. of an intense, horrible massacre of almost a genocide, you would say, although we don't know the exact number of people that have been killed there. I mean, there are people leaving there every day now. That seems to be like a good piece of news. And they're still holding the city kind of miraculously, the Ukrainians are. But this is going to be a scene of utter devastation and could be the scene for humanitarian efforts that we are hearing will be discussed tomorrow during the NATO meeting, that they might actually consider 
you know, an airlift of some sort or a humanitarian effort on maybe the Polish are, uh, are suggesting humanitarian efforts as peacekeepers coming in over the border. I mean, are these things realistic in this kind of environment where Putin is blowing up things? At the moment, nothing will happen unless the Russians allow it to. And that's the trouble. And if NATO is seen to be dictating to the Russians, then the Russians will you know, completely refute and uh, not permit anything like this to happen. I think where Polish peacekeepers will play a role is in Western Poland, uh, sorry, in Western Ukraine, some of which is former Polish lands uh, based around the city of Lviv, which is the third largest city in Ukraine, really. And that was actually in Polish hands after the First World War. And geography and and culture matter here because Western Ukraine was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That means they've always looked westwards. Their religion is Catholic rather than the rest of the country, which is Russian Orthodox. And therefore, the bonds with their neighboring states are much, much closer. A lot of people in Western Ukraine identify as as former Poles or from wherever. So there's a lot of close homogeneity and daily traffic over the border, particularly into Poland, for people who work and migrate and come back on a, a daily or weekly basis. So quite apart from the fact there's nearly 2 million Ukrainians now who are seeking refuge in Poland, yeah. there are these long, long, old, age-old cultural links. So that area of Western Ukraine and looking after the city of Lviv, that I think is where there could be a lot of humanitarian aid. But the moment you start to nudge towards Kharkiv and um, Kiev, you know, you're going to run into trouble if the Russians haven't permitted anything like that to happen. Right. There's good news around Kiev. It does look like they have been able to push back some of this red area that has been here over the last few days. It looks much sparser. Uh, It does look like they've had some success along this whole area here and here. It looks like there was a successful counteroffensive. That must be very encouraging to the Ukrainians at this point. Yeah, it is. It's also encouraging to the NATO allies who trained and equipped them for five years before the war began. It's the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, and one or two other nations were training and equipping the Ukrainian armed forces for at least five years and training on the modern weapon systems that they're using so effectively now. Now, if we contrast that with training and equipping forces, say, in Afghanistan, you know, the opposite result was obtained. So this is a huge validation of what some of the NATO partners do very well. But it just shows you the difference. If you're dealing with a country that's united, has got a strong sense of cultural bonding uh, and isn't riven by political factions, you get this result. But if you're trying to deal with a country that is endless different political parties and tribes, then you get the opposite result, which is what we saw in Afghanistan. And I think what happened last summer in Afghanistan, where the country just fell apart the moment the West withdrew, had played a very big role in our expectations of what would happen in Ukraine. But also, that I think is probably the thing that pushed Putin over the edge. And he he thought, Ukraine will be another Afghanistan. If I barge my way in, then the country will fall apart and I will be able to take it. And that's what's so wrong-footed him. Yeah, absolutely. I asked you before we went on the air tonight, what parallels in history there are to this. And uh, before you answer, I'm sort of going to answer for you. I'm going to play this clip from uh, April 17th, 1961. An obligation to present the facts, to present them with candor, and to present them in perspective. It is with that obligation in mind that I have decided in the last 24 hours to discuss briefly at this time the recent events in Cuba. 
On that unhappy island, as in so many other arenas of the contest for freedom, the news has grown worse instead of better. I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. Any unilateral American intervention in the absence of an external attack upon ourselves or an ally would have been contrary to our traditions and to our international obligations. But let the record show that our restraint is not inexhaustible. It does seem like Joe Biden is channeling some John F. Kennedy, isn't it? It seems pretty Yeah, close. and it would be perfectly right and sensible and proper for him to do that. I mean, the last time the world has been to this close to a, a major crack, a clash with Russia or, or the Soviet Union, as it was in those days, was indeed in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is what JFK was referring to there. But the parallels aren't exact. I mean, there wasn't a massive war going on with lots of lives being lost, particularly civilians being targeted. And the sophisticated methods by which the different nations across the divide spoke with one another weren't in place. It was only after Cuba that we had the hotlines, the telephones installed right, right, between right, right. the Kremlin and the White House. So there are lots of tripwires that weren't in place that are now. And you know, satellite imagery, which can tell us within minutes of what's going on and people's movements. So there are a lot more checks and balances in place than we ever had then. And that's why I'm also feeling you know, optimistic that we will find a way out of this and it won't end with someone pressing a red button. This is the uh, photograph that the UB-2, I think, or the bombers? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they took high, a, high yeah. This is how they got their reconnaissance of what was going on in Cuba at the time. You know, if this was the last time we had such a serious conflict, it doesn't look that serious in retrospect. I mean, you basically had a bunch of, you know, missile launch pads that were being built. It wasn't, it didn't get much further than that. I mean, there was a lot of saber rattling between these two gentlemen, but at the end of the day, you know, there's an invasion and there's some of the things that went on, but it's not really in the context of, of where we are today with Ukraine. It's not, it's much. No, much, but if, I mean, if you go back to those pictures of mm. the nuclear weapons, the same holds good today. So you don't just take a weapon into the middle of nowhere and, and launch it. Um, it needs all sorts of support facilities, which is what that aerial photograph today, it would be satellite imagery, would reveal. So lots of other vehicles, there would be an outer perimeter and, you know, to fire these things up into the atmosphere anywhere either. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of methodologies by which we would understand where they were firing them from. And those are the strategic ones. And as I say, you know, re reiterating, none of them have come out of their bases at all for even rehearsals. And the same with ta tactical nuclear weapons. So I, you know, what we're talking in general terms, and this again wasn't evident in Cuba in 1962, is of a whole series of runs that the Russians are using, all of which are forms of terror. The invasion is one, but the way they're using people and refugees and humanitarian corridors and the way they're taking people now away, which is a very old-fashioned Stalinist thing to do and take them off to Siberia or somewhere else, 
These are all methods from the past. They're weaponizing nuclear energy. If you remember the sort of various nuclear power plants that have been fought over and, and taken over by the Russians, there was a threat to do something nasty with them. And this is all messages to NATO and the outer world, back off, mm -hmm. or we will do something worse and more terrible. But they're not going to do it. It's a bluff. It is a bluff because they can't, they don't seem to have it. They don't seem to have the capability, right? I mean, they just don't, I mean, they might have the capability, but they don't have the way to back it up because they know it will follow. And they, well, they, Zev, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. If they send a vast army of 200,000, which is, you know, huge by any modern standards yeah. into Ukraine and it bogs down within days and they, within less than a month, they've lost 10% of it, either captured, killed, taken prisoner or the kit destroyed, you know, that is not a very well-functioning, very well-administered modern force. And the same you would then expect would apply all the way through right up to the you know, strategic rocket forces. And this is part of corruption. It's a state that is run really by bandits, the oligarchs, at every level. And we think one of the reasons why, you know, the Russian kit has performed so poorly is because some of the money has gone into people's pockets. Tires haven't been replaced and, you know, the vehicles go onto the battlefield and they shred because you need to replace all these sort of things. And that hasn't happened. So, you know, this, this is where the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we have always been under this spell that the Russian military machine is vast, it's ponderous, and it's incredibly powerful. And what they've done is they've maintained the propaganda that it is, but inside the shell has sort of started to empty. That's partly through corruption. It's partly because they don't have the money to maintain this huge beast because you know, things like, you know, Russia is decaying economically, internally. And so but, much of their GDP is tied to the oil price. 50% right. is oil and gas. And if the price comes down, which it has been even before the crisis began, then, you know, that's much, much less for the Putin to even spend on his military. Well, the two things you said earlier that I thought were really interesting, one is around the phone calls, the hotlines. The pace of communication has changed so much. I mean, we're getting information now every nanosecond from the front lines, and there's no delay at all. And so people's reactions can be instantaneous. People on Twitter are reacting to you know, almost immediately to events. That must have changed things a lot for the leaders here. I mean, you can certainly see a very different kind of posture from the Biden administration. They're doing a very a remarkable job of releasing intelligence and classified material that we've never had before. And it's partly because, I think, of this very busy sort of information landscape that we have now. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of describing it, the information landscape. And that's exactly what it is. We've been through this period of fake news, which doesn't mean anything is fake. It means simply news that I disagree with. And the terminology has gone all the way around the world. So when the, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations uh, only last week, was accused of war crimes in Mariupol, which we've just been discussing. He turned around and said, that's fake news. Well, but there was a Russian in the Big Apple describing something he didn't like as fake news. So that, you know, the term originated in New York. It's come full circle, and it took a Russian to sort of throw that one back. So you I, mentioned Donald Trump, or you didn't mention him, but I'll, I'll mention I didn't. him by name. <laughs> I always wonder what the plan was there. I mean, was it that they expect him to be in for two terms, or do you think that they just thought it will cause enough damage in the first term to set them up for this invasion in the second term, because there'll be so much disarray? What do you think happened there? Well, here's the conundrum, Zev. The big question is, is not where or how, but why. Why now? 
Why did Russia invade Ukraine in February when the ghosts of Napoleon and Hitler would have tapped Putin on the shoulder and said, not now, you know, the weather is at its worst, mud, poor conditions, don't even think about it. 2022 is a year when a lot of European nations are going to the polls. So you might have expected to disrupt some of their election processes and at least muddy the waters sufficiently to distract the world when you could then go in with much easier ride than now when everybody's focused on Ukraine straight away. So, I mean, there are all sorts of different reasons and we don't know the answer. And I was explaining, we were having a chat before we went on about how we are reacting to things on a day-to-day basis, whereas history is written with the benefit of 10 or 20 years analysis and we simply don't have that. The big question is we don't know why Putin has gone in at this particular moment in time when you know it would make perfect sense to him to wait for another term of a Trump presidency. For uh, He could have waited for Nord Stream 2, which is this massive gas pipeline which has been built from Russia to Germany to be certified. And then for whatever it is, 55 billion cubic meters of gas per second to be pumped up to Europe, which is whatever it is, 43% of Europe's energy needs. And once that's online, then the whole of Europe would be far more beholden to Russian energy than it is at the moment. So there are lots of very good reasons for saying wait till later in the year. And the the answer is, the best arguments I've heard are demographics, that the Russian life expectancy is getting lower and lower, and yet they're producing fewer and fewer children. So this is the last big generation who can go to war on any scale. Not even sure if that answers the question. And my own personal speculation is he's probably got some kind of medical time bomb that we don't know about. Could that be. means that he has to move now or the master stroke will be beyond him because he'll be no longer with us. There's a factor here as well that I hear rumbled about a lot, which is the trade routes. I mean, that there's, you know, more and more Russia are just getting excluded from being able to trade to these big, you know, to Africa in particular, but to other parts of the world, where so much of these rare earth minerals are becoming so important to the tech sector. And it is, you know, if you look at this map again, it is kind of complicated for the, um, for the Russians, because the, the Ukrainian port, that area that we showed you along the coastline there, those are very, very valuable ports. I mean, they're warm water-ish, I think. They operate all, all year round. And they also, as you pointed out earlier on, the wheat situation that, you know, they provide a lot of the wheat to the world, but they're also a big export location for Africa. And Africa, as you know, is a big part of the rare earth minerals battle. So do you think that has something to do with it? Is sort of them looking for more trade opportunities around the world and to control more of these ports, more of this coastline that is so vital to every economy? Well, if he can control the Black Sea, which he can do by controlling those two ports, then that helps him enormously. And the Africa dimension is very important because if you look at the um, African Union at the moment, only half the countries voted against Russia in the last UN emergency meeting. And that means something like 30 African states uh, abstained or actively voted against or actively supported Russia in one way or another. And that is largely energy connected. There's a bit of um, colonial politics going on there as well against the West, but there's a lot of energy. So what are Ukraine's exports? 25% of the world's wheat, of the entire world's wheat, comes from Russia and Ukraine. 
and the vast proportion of that comes from Ukraine. So they need ports to export those from. And the only two ports they have is Mariupol in the east and Odessa in the, in the west. There's huge amounts of coal and there's huge amounts of timber, for example. So, I mean, those are the basic resources before you go down to sort of um, metal and minerals. So all of that is really important. But there's another dimension to this, which is goes far beyond Ukraine and is far more important to you in Canada, which is the Arctic Passage. Mm. So at a time of global warming, when uh, the ice melt around the, the polar cap is increasing all the time, the feeling is that in a few years' time, you will be able to force passage with icebreakers for much of the year around the top. Yeah, I think they could do it now. Uh, and, so, yeah, exactly. In, exactly. In, not very easily, but, but I think they, they are able the to get land, Exactly. Yeah. So if you look at the Russian landmass, Russia has militarized its coastline all the way along, both its naval and its air forces. And there is a sense that what it's going to do is police that route. And of course, for international trade, particularly to the, the sort of Asia Pacific, you will cut the, you know, the shipping route, the shipping time. You could shave a week or two, several weeks off the current transportation times. Which is huge. And Russia will be the country set to benefit the most. And it will price it so that it always remains just a bit cheaper. But that will be another source of revenue for Russia. So, you know, part of the wider Russian militarization of society and their massive spend that they can't really afford is also, we think, to perpetuate that. And certainly, you know, there's plenty of evidence that they've reactivated all their ice ba- their bases along sort of um, the polar north. So there, like a protection there, are, there are lots of different agendas going on. Yeah. It is like a protection racket. I mean, it seems like a really mob move, you know, to try and like, we're going to take over your ports and charge you you higher rates because that's what we could do. But it it also explains a lot of what's going on. I mean, so my mind went there because you quite rightly identified that the Black Sea ports are the only ports that Russia has that are open all year round. You go up to St. Petersburg, that shuts in the winter months because the Baltic starts to freeze. And the same with Murmansk and um, everything around at the top. So the only ports that conduct business all year round are in the Black Sea. And of course, Russia also has this base in Tartus, which is Syria, which explains that they're close links with the Syrian military. I mean, this goes back to before Putin's time and before the president before Assad in Syria, it was his father who did deals with, um, with I think, Brezhnev. But that, they already have a link into the Mediterranean. Right. I have so a there theory. are much, much wider agendas here. This is, you know, Ukraine is the tip of the iceberg for a very aggressive international foreign policy that the Russians have been pursuing really since Putin came to office. And, you know, he first took over as vice president in 1999 to Boris yeah. Yeltsin. Yeah, I think that's... Uh it's terrifying, really, what you're saying, because they are trying to find this path down to the Mediterranean, which, you know, they might try to do. I noticed, you know, I always look at the countries that don't want to give weapons to the Russians and basically the Hungarians and the Greeks have refused so far to give very much to the Ukrainians. And uh, mostly the Greeks have refused to give them the SL-300s, which I thought was an interesting move. You know, they're, they're part of NATO. Are they part of NATO? They are part of NATO, yeah. So they, yes, uh, yes, yes, they are. I mean, Putin has been working every possible angle yeah. diplomatically for quite a long time, which is why we feel, and I mean, I was lecturing this from about 2012. I mean, what, one reason why I've come in so heavily and so quickly is because it all makes sense to me, because this is the way my mind has been going for nearly 20 years warning of where Putin might be going. And so it doesn't come as a surprise to me. Putin spent a lot of diplomatic currency about 10 years ago trying to woo the Greeks because they're a fellow Orthodox country. 
Right. And if you remember how much he's used the Russian Orthodox Church at the moment, who are backing him 100%, you know, he's using this wider network of either the Slav nations, which takes him into almost my neck of the woods, but certainly there are a lot of Serbs who are supporting him. And if you're not Slavic, then you're Orthodox. And even if you're not Russian Orthodox, you might be Greek Orthodox. And therefore, there's synergy there, and that's what he's been trying to do. So there are people in Athens, certainly, who are, their view is ambiguous. They're not quite sure which way to go. You know, this is dangerous from a NATO point of view, never mind the fact that Putin has also been cozying up to Turkey. They took his weapon system, the Exanders, but against all NATO advice, I mean, you don't buy weapon systems from your opponents if you're part of an alliance. You should buy from within the alliance. So Turkey's been sort of stepping both ways. But at the moment, you know, they're they're caught between a rock and a hard place. But I think they're, you know, they're more keen on the benefits they will get from further Western integration than anything that Putin can give them. Yeah, certainly with the current war situation. I mean, you look at this whole thing, they, you know, Putin might have a plan to try to take over the entire Black Sea, but he is not going to succeed. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Does it look like it's going to happen under the current conditions? No, it doesn't. And I think the important thing, I mean, you know, we're, we're completely bound up with the war on a day-to-day basis mm. and, you know, social media and all the other forms of communication at the moment are full of what's happening on a day-to-day basis. But if we step back and take a wider, you know, look at what's going on, what we have to look at is the end state. And no matter how it ends, no matter how much of Ukraine Putin takes, whether it's, you know, it's all or very little or none at all, you know, he's isolated himself from the world community. And that's not going to suddenly end because he stops fighting. He is committing war crimes, from what I can make out, on a daily basis. And his troops are shooting civilians in a way that we haven't seen since the Balkan Wars and going back before that to sort of the end of the Second World War. And you don't suddenly stop and say, okay, right, come back now, all is forgiven because you're not fighting anymore. You know, it's going to take a generation to move on from what Russia has done in Ukraine. And there will always be that feel if you're in the Baltic states or any of the neighboring countries, and this is why they're being reinforced by NATO. If you live in Estonia, where you've got a fair chunk of your population who are ethnic Russians, and you share a border with Russia, how comfortable are you going to feel for the rest of your life? And the answer is, you know, you're not. This is playing out in Finland at the moment, who've always been aggressively armed a neutral country. But the public opinion in Finland has always been against joining NATO, although the politicians have always rather liked the idea. The last figure I heard now is 62% of the population in Finland want to join NATO. And so what Putin has done is excited this in, intense hostility, and that won't disappear for decades. No. And you talk about this uh, trade route along the north, that really must be worrying the Finns and the Swedes. They must be concerned about that as well, if all this traffic is going to start coming through here. And they've got uh, Russia playing the mob next to them. That must be very Well, I mean, I mean, so there is a Baltic Sea sort of union, which includes the non-NATO partners as well as the NATO ones, who are incredibly nervous about that, mm. Sweden too. But if you're talking about the sort of polar areas, then Canada, Norway, and the United States, the three main players. And you talk regularly, discuss the implications, but clearly the, the, the nervousness levels have you know, rocketed, to use a fortunate phrase way beyond the norm because you know russia is saber rattling not just in ukraine but everywhere mm. georgia for example also in the black sea you know has got a massive disinformation campaign 
aimed at her, which started at the same sort of time as the invasion of Ukraine. So Russia is active in a lot of different spheres. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier on, and I want to get back to it, is that Ukraine is winning this war because you know, it has been trained and armed by a lot of these Western countries. Sometimes you get the feeling when you talk to Ukrainians, and you can understand why, because they're in the middle of a horrific battle, that nothing was, you know, they weren't getting as much support as they needed to or should have. But in reality, the West has done an incredible job here of preparing Ukraine for this clash over the last five years. I mean, it's pretty spectacular where the West has shown up with so much unity and you know, imposed these sanctions in such a fast way, but also the delivery of weapons. It's, it's pretty remarkable. I, I can't recall a time in history where the world was so unified so quickly. And I think that rests on another invisible point that doesn't often come up, which is that there is a massive Ukrainian diaspora around the world. Mm-hmm. And this partly comes from the end of the Second World War, but also much earlier with, with various purges and so on. So there are about 10 million people outside Ukraine who identify as being of Ukrainian descent. And I know you and I were talking, discussing that Canada has an enormous number. So does the United States. And there's a a tidy amount in the United Kingdom. And so in terms of rousing public opinion outside Ukraine, this again is something the Russians have completely overlooked because everybody is proud to know a Ukrainian. And, you know, the number of Ukraine flags I have seen flying through social media around the world is just absolutely astonishing. And what this isn't is Czechoslovakia in 1938, a distant country of which we know little, to quote Neville Chamberlain, the British prime minister at the time. This is a country that many people know intimately well. And a lot of us have visited. I mean, I know it very well indeed, but a lot of people have visited Lviv and Kiev and so on, because it's a beautiful country. And, you know, the architecture is stunning and there have been lots of cultural events and sporting fixtures there. So all of this adds to this you know, huge wellspring of enthusiasm and support for Ukraine around the world, which you know has surprised us all, has surprised Vladimir Putin the most. Absolutely. And you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it unpacks here, because how he finds his way out is difficult to understand. I want to play you another clip. This is from Russian TV. This is, you know, the Russians are being fed a diet of, we're going to nuke them too. I mean, they're just using it from the other perspective. So let's take a look at what they're saying on Russian TV, and we'll come back and discuss it. No, that's not it. This is about Catherine the Great. Let's look at Catherine the Great. It would be a terrible mistake to go against me. You love nobody but yourself. I would like to remind you that you owe all of your advancement and all of your military power to me. I own you. And I remind you, I waited through blood for you. So this is obviously the very successful HBO series that was uh, last year, I think. Uh, Helen Mirren playing uh, Catherine the Great. And Catherine the Great has a, has a big influence on this particular period of time, or at least this area of, of, of Ukraine that is under contest, under, that the Russians are contesting right now. Because she was the one who actually originally captured this area around, um, around the Black Sea that is now in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and about um, you know, Novorossiya, which is this area that Putin talks about a lot. Yeah, I mean, you, New Russia, the sort of the the area that we associate with with Russia in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, mm-hmm. um, is really a creation that's no more than about three hundred years old, um, and, and and the hinterland, you know, was was. Uh, under all sorts of different influences. I mean, it's it's originally Viking, uh, a lot of it in origin. 
um, uh, and then the Mongols came and shattered that. Uh, but the first strong person um, who identified and, and welded together um, through through fear and hard work was actually a Russian. It was actually a German Prussian who became Catherine the Great, and she welded together what part, a large chunk of what is modern Russia. And particularly, she understood the whole business of trading that we've been discussing and the need for a warm water port all year round. Uh, and it was she who identified the Crimea uh, as somewhere that the Russians needed to take by force, which they did from the um, the population who were basically Muslims who were forcibly evicted. So it wasn't simply taking a port. It was owning the whole hinterland, which we call the Crimea, mm-hmm. which they call Krim. Uh, and that has been in Russian hands uh, ever since. But in the 1960s, that it was decided to technically hand it back to a Soviet socialist republic, which was called Ukraine, which would mean absolutely nothing, but it was window dressing that the Ukrainians had suffered a lot in the Stalinist era. And therefore, this was Khrushchev, in fact, giving them something back, although it, it was meaningless. But it was meaningless enough, to him, but meaningless because... It was meaningless to him, but, yeah. but later on, in uh, yeah, once the Berlin Wall came down yeah. uh, in 1990, all of a sudden it became you know, hugely, hugely important. But that's why Crimea is part of uh, Russia rather than anything else. So it's always been associated with Ukraine and its hinterland, and the major port of Sevastopol, which is the third port of the area. And that was always a military port. But that was where a lot of the grain also left Ukraine. Um, This is what Putin means when he says that the end of the Soviet era was, you know, the worst thing that ever happened in in Russian history, whatever his quote is. It's because they took these ports away. He no longer had Crimea because that was handed over to the Ukrainians. So they had that area and he lost a lot of trade opportunities. I mean, the uh, the economic prospects of of Russia changed dramatically because of that. I mean, there are two things to note. Um, That's the reason he gives. The actual reason is far more personal than that. Vladimir Putin then was Lieutenant Colonel Putin of the KGB, and he was the one of the senior men in Dresden in East Germany. That's where he uh, really sort of came to power. So in, in, at the time of the Berlin Wall coming down, 1989, he was a very important person, senior rank in the KGB in East Germany. That's why he grew up speaking German. That's why Angela Merkel grew up speaking Russian. That's why the two were always able to have their meaningful conversations. But overnight... Putin was reduced from being this you know, very powerful, respected lieutenant colonel in the KGB to being nothing because the Soviet Union disintegrated. The KGB were powerless. He lost his job, his income, his influence. And wow. if he's to be believed, he was a freelance taxi driver in really? 1989, 1990. This is what he claims. Oh, wow. Um, that? And that's what leads him to say that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the, of the 20th century. Uh, hmm. I mean, you, you might say, well, what about the, the Russian Revolution? But no, no. And that's because it hurt him. And Personally. he's then projected that hurt onto everything. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the greatest geopolitical catastrophe for him. It certainly turned the course of Russian and East European history. Um, that's why he emphasizes it so much. So a lot of this is returning Russia to the greatness it was, but along the way, trying to heal some of the hurt he personally felt that hurt his generation and his friends, particularly in the KGB. 
And it's no accident that those are the guys in power now. He certainly is an interesting character. I mean, there's complexity in everything about Vladimir Putin, which is just uh, interesting. Um, there's also a, a maniacal side to him that seems to be hell-bent on doing, you know, achieving his goals regardless of anything. He doesn't seem to care about the people that are dying. He doesn't seem to care about the humanitarian crisis that he's creating. He just, that doesn't seem to impact him. All he seems to do is want to achieve this goal. Is that an accurate sense from your perspective of what he's like? I'm not sure any of us really know what he's like. I mean, there's, there's a whole academic discipline. We used to call ourselves Kremlinologists. Now it's Putin watchers. But every time anyone gets close to any kind of measured analysis, he goes and says or does something that throws everything up into the air. So I'm content to sit back and say, right, he's every James Bond baddie rolled into one. <laughs> if he doesn't live in a hollowed out volcano with a glass roof, he could certainly afford to do so. And so he is he's everything that Ian Fleming could have ever imagined for James Bond to combat. But really with is. the political power and the nuclear weapons to go with that particular really nasty cocktail. Uh, I'm not sure probably even knows who he is, because he's never been pushed into this position. I mean, the proof of the pudding with all these things is is who your inner circle is and who your successor is if you suddenly fall over. And none of us are aware of an instant man in the wings who would come in and pick up the reins were Vladimir Putin suddenly to die tomorrow. Wow. And that is the point. He's not confiding in anybody else. There's not a network in place there. When he goes, the whole thing crashes down. There's no continuity in place. And that's there really, are names really people keep mentioning, like Petrochov, I think is one of them, but yeah, uh, the head of the Security Council, that do get floated around from time to time. They they're do, the but it's never the same names. They're in favour or they're out of favour. Right. Just before the Ukrainian invasion, we saw the, the um, you know the, the head of foreign intelligence. Um, I mean, don't forget, this is this is a state where information is controlled. Information is the most valuable resource because um, if you control people's minds, you do that by controlling the data that they have access to. So you have to control everything, every image, every word. It's all really, really carefully chosen. What a great segue um, to this clip because I finally found it. Let's take a look at what they're telling good. Russians right now on Russian TV. Russia. 
боевого дежурства. Если мы снова нашу армию подведем к западным границам, они трусливые, они боятся, их нужно брать испугом, кнутом. Мы э, ни в коем случае не можем остановиться на полпути. С такими санкциями, кто сказал, что надо останавливаться вообще в границу Украины? Например, может выглядеть сценарий по а, собственному захвату Дебалтики. Да и Россия единственная страна в мире, которая реально способна превратить США в радиоактивный пепел. I mean, it's dramatic and terrifying, but you know, this is what they're getting fed in on Russian TV, and it's a it's a whole different landscape over there for them. They don't have a pluralist media, mm-hmm. so the state media controls everything. In the first week of the invasion, we saw all the independent voices being closed down, and indeed, you know. TV executives have now left their jobs, uh, including that very brave woman who unfurled the poster behind the newsreader. But it means the Russians are now only getting one diet, which is what the, the Kremlin wants them to hear. And that's in order to make sure that they all turn out as true patriots and they will live all Putin, Putin wants. This is going back to 1944-45 in Nazi Germany, where all access to other kinds of media are, are being shut off. Now, the one sort of beacon of liberty is, uh, well, there are two. One is mobile phones, and I'm still surprised I can talk to friends in St. Petersburg. Mm, um, that is good. The Russians have found that they simply can't shut off the cellular network, and certainly not in Ukraine, because they're using it themselves. Right. They Their own it. technology is so yeah. appalling. The, the Russian military are needing to use the cellular technology just to communicate You know, they started to kill the, the TV tower, but they suddenly realized they needed them as much as the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are using WhatsApp right. to transmit target data between you know, military units because that's, that's the quickest and most effective, uh, and there's a degree of encryption. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So the, the Ukrainians are the Russians are doing that? You said the Ukrainians. So, sorry, the, the, the Ukrainians are yeah. using WhatsApp. Okay. And the Russians are also having to use WhatsApp yeah. as well because their, their own technology is not up to the job. But the other thing is, is we have wound our way back. I mean, all the uh, the radio networks, certainly in the United Kingdom and throughout Europe, went digital. And the BBC World Service has now gone back to analog because that's the way it can get through to the Russian people. Mm-hmm. There's the wonderful radio? BBC Russian the Ukrainian service. So we have gone back to the days of the Cold War and Cold War technology because it's far more difficult for the Russians to jam because everything has gone high-tech to the digital world. It's so interesting. When I was a kid in South Africa, you know, I used to have a shortwave radio just to just so I could listen to the BBC or, or any other foreign news services because like Russia today, South Africa was under a complete news blackout. So I certainly understand how hungry you get for that information, but also how easy it is for a whole country to be lied to in the way that we were in South Africa, but also how the Russians are being lied to right now. It's kind of, it's remarkable how quickly that could happen. So one of the problems I have is, yeah, we're mobilizing world opinion against Russia and, and what Vladimir Putin is doing. There's the whole Russian people we have got to realize who are really hurting and suffering in all of this. So when all the Western companies pull out, and I'm not thinking of the high-end sort of Pradas, I'm thinking of you know, Starbucks and McDonald's, mm. um, it's the Russian people who are uh, a Russia without a, a strong dictator, Putin or you know, his mates, the Russia that we do want. So our, I've always said our quarrel isn't with the Russian people, it's with their leadership. 
and their gang, their mafiosi, um, that run the, run the country. And, you know, this adds another layer of problem, and hence, you know, BBC Russian service and all the rest of it. They're the people we're trying to communicate. The battle is really for the hearts and minds of the Russian people because they're, these are the ones that Putin is trying to control by restricting their access to everything else that's going on in the world. So interesting. I've got a couple of questions here from the audience. One of them, do you, do you know much about Alexander Dugan and what his role has been in helping uh, forge uh, Putin's mind? I guess he's called the uh, Putin's Rasputin in that he's able to influence him about all the changes in the world. Do you see that influential? Uh, well, there's a circle of three or four um, who are really philosophers more than anything else who've come up with their own worldview. Um, and this is where the the idea of, of Nova Rossiya and uh, the traditions of Rus uh, have come from. Uh, and all the culture that goes that that Ukraine is linked in with that, but also the wider sphere of the other SSRs, the Baltic states, from eclipse that we've just had. Um, I mean, you know, Putin has never shown any academic um, sort of interest before, and yet all of a sudden he st suddenly starts to come out with these the, the six thousand word essay we had on on Ukraine in July last summer. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all the, the intellectual circle. They're the ones feeding him. And what we think has happened um, is uh, Putin reacted very badly to COVID. He didn't catch it, but he's paranoid about catching things. I, I, I mentioned the whole business of food tasters and all the rest of it. So he isolated himself from absolutely everything in Russia, including most people. He didn't want to catch COVID from anybody. And so he'd ridden out that storm, but it meant an almost you know, complete isolation from other human beings with whom he would interact on a day-to-day -day basis. Everything was, you know, what he has had is a very small circle of people that he's spoken to throughout, you know, the two years of the pandemic. And they're the ones we think have changed his mind, people like Dugan, who are, you know, intellectuals. They've had discussions probably digitally rather but, but by video link rather than face to face but this is how putin has sort of spent his time um because actually the, the health situation in russia is absolutely lamentable they've got one of the lowest take-up rates for vaccine inventions oh, well. and we're not even sure whether the sputnik vaccine was any good at all but it was you know it was paraded as this great russian solution to world health care and in fact those who bought it uh, seem to have been rather re regretting that they did, uh, and it may well have just been some kind of placebo. I think we should sure. continue to get you better. It's getting really late over there, um, so I'm going to be aware of your your sleep patterns. But I do want you to talk a little bit about your future books. Uh, one of them, which is coming up in May, you told me, um, but different covers for different parts of the world. So tell me what people can find in this book and and why they should buy it. Well, that's that's that's, uh, that's really kind, Ed. I've written a trilogy about the Second World War. The first volume was Sand and Steel, which is a volume about the D-Day landings. Um, the second volume was Snow and Steel, which was about the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and my final volume is called Fire and Steel in the United States, but the UK title is Victory in the West. And that's the last hundred days of the Second World War. So it, it, it's really talking about the end of the world, but more significantly, the crossings over the River Rhine, that great 800-mile-long river that is Germany's sort of western frontier, and the last six weeks of World War II, because once we're over the Rhine, 
you know, Germany disintegrates, but there's a lot of hard fighting. You know, I see so many parallels, and they've been creeping out, leaking all tonight how you know, Putin is controlling people in the way the Nazis did in, in Germany during the, the Third Reich era. The way I think the River Dnieper will play a huge role in the coming battles in Ukraine, in the way the Rhine did, because there's a whole battle yet to come, probably, of, of the, Russian, the Ukrainian forces defending eastern Ukraine. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it, when that Mariupol falls, they may be pushed back to the River Dnieper, and we may have a long river line battle similar to the, the German defense of, of the River Rhine in 1945. Wow, so that's in this book. Um, and then the, the aftermath. It's all in this book, and this is coming out in May, so the timing actually could be um, you know, quite, uh, quite fortuitous. It's I almost mean, like you had advance warning. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? <laughs> no, I mean you must. Have, <laughs> it is pretty I am not coincidental. Going to being, you know, the, the, the secret advisor of Vladimir Putin, <laughs> certainly not public. By the way, but everyone I, can I, find. I wanted to write. Yeah, I wanted to write. Um, the, round off my trilogy of the yeah. Second World War and to do it. Um, and uh, as it happens, um, it'll be out in May in the UK and a bit later on in, in the United States, and I will be doing book tours and book signings with it. So I hope to meet many of you who are listening and watching now in person to be able to chat and scribble in a book with a signature for you. Well, I hope you'll come back on the show and talk a bit about a lot more. About I would love to. But I should thank also tell people that. that it's on, been uh, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Really great. I know it's really late and I p- appreciate you staying up so late. I do want to tell people that they can find a lot of your books on Amazon.com or Amazon, wherever they might be. And you've got a page. If they just type in your name, Peter Caddick Adams, you'll find all of Peter's books. There are many and they all are terrific. If you're a history buff, this is one place to go and buy these books. And Peter's worth your time. Uh, as you can tell, he knows a lot of the stuff that he needs to know in order to be a NATO historian. Pretty remarkable career you've had. And we thank you so much for spending some of your time with us tonight. It's really helped me understand well, a lot so, more so, about it's, it's been absolutely great because I always learn things by the questions I'm asked. And if people want to follow me, they can they find me on Twitter, which is how you and I first met, and all, all the other usual social media as well. So um, it will be great to be back and um, talk about the aftermath of this awful war, because I hope it will finish. We don't know when, but hopefully we can pause and look back at it, but also talk about um, you know other aspects and the end of the Second World War once my book is out and, and being read. That would be one. I, I can't wait to Thank read you. it, actually. You've, uh, you've uh, enticed me into wanting to read it, so I'm going to buy a copy, pre-order a copy right now. I hope the audience does as well tonight. And that is our show for tonight. I want to thank everyone who's watching. I want to thank all our Patreon and patrons who support Narrative. It's really important that you keep doing that. It's the only way we can bring you this kind of programming, which I, I know you'll agree is very, very useful. But on that note... It's a very good morning to you, Peter, and a very good night to everybody else as we say good night on Narrative. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.